Good morning, everybody. My name is Isaac. I get to be one of the pastors here if I haven't had a chance to meet you. It is so great to be with you this morning. You probably have already noticed things look a little bit different on the live stream today. You got all this stuff right here. You might be wondering what in the world is going on. But if you read uh, your passage this week from our weekly Bible reading plan, you know that we're talking about Passover today. Um, so many of you might know, if you know me, that I am Jewish. Uh, my heritage is Jewish. I actually work with an organization called Jews for Jesus, not Cheeses, in, in case you were concerned or confused about that. Um, but actually, I get the privilege to share with you something that has been a part of my heritage as a Jewish person growing up. So I'm not just like flexing on you like Jewish cred this morning. This is actually something that I love doing, which is sharing the Passover meal with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's such a privilege because we forget often that Jesus was and is Jewish and that the entire context of the New Testament is for the most part, a Jewish conversation going on. And it's being interpreted for the Gentiles, for the rest of the world. And so this morning, what I'd love for us to be asking ourselves is what story are we a part of? What story are you living in? Beyond the uh, you know, classic definitions of comedy or tragedy, if you've ever seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell, he has to like decide whether he's living in a comedy or a tragedy, and it's this great drama. But even beyond that, I'm talking about what story are you living in culturally? What story are you living in personally and communally? Because every culture has a story. What does it mean to be us? Where did we come from? What is good? What is bad? What does it mean to be saved? This story helps us interpret the world around us. And often what happens is when we read our Bibles, we are trying to apply the story of the Bible to our story. We're, we're attempting to fit the story of the Bible into our lives, into our stories. Like if you read the Old Testament, like Daniel trusted in God and he got thrown in the lion's den and it was okay, so you can trust in God too. And that is good. I'm not saying that's a bad way to read the Bible, but often we're trying to cram this giant meta-narrative of scripture into our personal stories for today. And sometimes it just doesn't fit. It is equally important for us to apply ourselves to the Bible's story. And this is a recognition that every culture and even every person has our own story, but the Bible actually claims to be the story, the central narrative of human existence. Now you might be familiar with a term called cultural appropriation. Uh, this is the act, uh, the negative act of taking somebody else's culture and pretending that it is your own, taking the symbols of a culture and applying it to yourself. And this is actually what the Jewish community says that Christians who observe the Passover are doing. Jews 
for the most part, do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe that he is the Messiah. And so when they see Christians celebrating or even talking about the Passover and wanting to make that part of their own story, they see it as cultural appropriation. Like Jesus never celebrated Passover the way we do today, the way my family does. It was totally different back then. And some of this is true. And actually there are very weird Christian subcultures where you can find like blowing shofars as a regular part of their like worship services and like even pastors being wrapped in Torah scrolls. Don't Google it. I, I discourage that. That is super weird and that should be considered cultural appropriation. But a very key point is missing if we stop there because if Jesus is not the Messiah, according to the scriptures, if the Passover meal wasn't all about him, then the entire Christian faith is just one big cultural appropriation. Sit with that just for a minute. There is one central narrative being told by God since the beginning. And the common thread that weaves through the entire tapestry of God's redemptive plan is the Passover story. It is a plan that God had since the foundation of the world. And this Passover meal is the centerpiece of our faith. And if we forget the significance of Passover, we reduce our faith to merely another one of the world religions rather than a part of the authoritative story of God. So in our texts today, we're gonna to see Jesus celebrating the Passover meal. Yes, in a different way than a lot of the Jewish community does today, but we're going to look at what happened at Jesus's Passover Seder, while I also take you through some of the elements that are a part of a modern Passover Seder in the Jewish community today. It's not going to be exhaustive. We don't have the time to do that. So we're gonna to touch on some of the key elements. And if you wanna find out how to celebrate it or learn more about it, you can email me, isaac.b at collectivechurch.com. We can talk more about it. But Passover, the reason this stuff is here today is because Passover is an object lesson. It is a symbolic lesson. So these elements are not meant to be like some kind of cheesy show and tell kind of thing, but actually to show you what's involved in remembering the story and making it personal. So we're going to read from Mark chapter 14, verse 12. But before we get into it, I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that today, as a result of unpacking the Passover story and what it means for us and how we can be a part of it, that you would enable us to see how we can join in what you've been doing since the very beginning and how Passover foreshadowed everything that Jesus was going to do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I pray that you do this for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Jesus' disciples, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Notice he didn't ask, hey, are you gonna celebrate Passover this year? It was assumed, right? He'd been celebrating it every year since he was a kid. Of course, he's gonna celebrate the Passover. Verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, 
The teacher says, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So the first night of Passover actually begins a seven-day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And those two things are going on at the same time. So Jesus sent these two disciples there to get the house ready for Passover. And that's because during the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Jewish community, we don't eat anything that contains leaven or yeast. So if you got like really creative during quarantine and you started a sourdough starter and like started baking and stuff like that, you know all of this. You know that it only takes a little bit of leaven for the dough to rise and become puffed up. And leaven in scripture is a symbol for sin. In the same way that sin causes us to become puffed up with pride, leaven causes the dough to rise. And so symbolically during this feast, we remove all of the leaven from our homes as a way of saying, we wanna break the cycle of sin in our lives. So in some like Orthodox or more religious Jewish homes, that means six weeks before Passover even starts, the house goes through a spring cleaning to remove all of the leaven from the house to get ready for the Passover. And that's why Jesus sent Peter and John on this super secret mission to find this room that was ready. He wasn't like making dinner reservations at like the new restaurant in town called the upper room. It was actually like this room was prepared for the Passover, which means it had all of the leaven removed from its premises. And this room had been prepared for this day when the one whom the Passover feast points to would himself celebrate and fulfill it. And this Passover meal that we're gonna see is what all previous Passovers had been anticipating. Jesus's last meal was this feast that had been pointing towards him for thousands of years. So it's the head of the household in the Jewish community that inspects the house once it's been cleaned to see if it's been readied for the Passover appropriately. And it's the head of the household that guides his family through what is called a Passover Seder. Seder is a Hebrew word that means order because the Passover follows a very ancient order of tradition recorded in a book called a Haggadah. And a Haggadah means the telling because it is a meal that tells a story. It reenacts these pivotal events in the life of Israel, these pivotal events from the past that have enduring significance for our reality today. And this isn't just any old meal that you'd like sit around with your family and eat or whatever. This Passover Seder can take up to a total of four hours. So I asked Pastor Lorenzo and Pastor Ryan if I could have more of your time this morning. So, no, just kidding, don't worry. <laughs> We're gonna get it done on the normal time. But during that time, during the Passover Seder, we drink from a cup and refill it a total of four times. There are four different cups in Passover and each cup has a different name. There is sanctification, 
plagues, redemption, and praise. And it's with the first cup that the Passover Seder is inaugurated, the cup of sanctification or Kiddush in Hebrew. And the head of the household fills his cup and raises it and says a blessing over it to sanctify or set apart the rest of the evening that is to follow. And after he does that, the Passover Seder has officially begun. And that triggers the youngest kid at the table, the youngest child present to come forward and ask the meaning of Passover. And he or she will ask traditionally four questions. These four questions are found in the Haggadah and it's the duty of the kid to recite these questions for everyone sitting at the table. And the first question is, And in English, that means, <laughs> you can all tell that I had to do that as a kid. I was like the youngest and I had to, it was actually a song you have to sing. So in English, it means why is this night different from all other nights. On all other nights, we eat leavened or unleavened bread. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? So we actually take the opportunity to answer the kids' questions. And if you think about it, it makes sense that it's a little kid who's asking the questions at Passover because you can picture it like they're all there like dressed in these uncomfortable clothes and there's food on the table, but nobody's eating the food. And there's all these people talking and it's like, what is going on? Why are we not eating this food? When are we gonna eat? When is this whole thing gonna be over? You can imagine this like whiny kid sitting there and saying that it's great. I was that whiny kid. But if you think about it, it actually makes sense because it's about passing the traditions of redemption on to the next generation. And so those of us sitting at the table at Passover respond to the child's question by telling the story of Passover. And we say, this is what God did for me. Notice, personalizing it. When he brought me out of Egypt, when he redeemed me from bondage and slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So redemption is the central point of Passover. It is the heart of Passover. And the celebration communicates the message of God's redemption or how and why it happened, but also the mechanism of redemption, how it happened. And that is through the blood of the Passover lamb, right? You know the story of the Exodus. My ancestors, the Israelites in Egypt were instructed by God to take a unblemished lamb to roast it without breaking any of its bones and apply the blood of this lamb to the doorposts of their homes in Egypt, to the top and the two side posts. And because of their faith in God and in the effectiveness of this provision of the lamb, they were spared the wrath of that 10th plague that fell on the land of Egypt, the death of the firstborn. So when God saw the blood of this lamb on the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites, death itself was forced to pass over, which is where we get the name. In Hebrew, it's Pesach. And it is this holiday that commemorates the time that death passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt because of the blood of the lamb which is the central narrative of the people of Israel. And it is a powerful act of God's redemption. But we know also that it is a picture 
of another act of redemption through the blood of another Passover lamb, right? Just as none of the bones of that first Passover lamb were to be broken, the apostle John tells us that none of Jesus's bones were broken in his death. And just as my ancestors in Egypt had to apply that blood to their doors in faith, the call is for each one of us today to apply the blood of the Messiah, Jesus, to the doorposts of our hearts. Now, again, this is not the way that most of the Jewish community tells this story, but you can see the connections. And this is how I grew up celebrating it. So why a lamb was commanded to be sacrificed at the Passover every year was this initial moment of redemption from slavery in the land of Egypt, perpetually reminding us when our people were spared from death, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the blood. If you notice in the story, the angel of death passes over the homes of Israel and Egypt, but it didn't matter whether you were an Israelite or an Egyptian. It only mattered whether your home was covered by the blood of the lamb. So that second part of the first question that I asked and that the young kid asks is why on this night do we only eat unleavened bread or matzah as it's often called? So there's an item on every Passover table called a matzah tash, okay? And it contains three layers of unleavened bread or matzah separated by some cloth. And at this point of the Seder, the, the head of the household will remove the middle of the three layers of matzah and say, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Remember, they had to take their bread with them while it was still flat in their haste to leave Egypt. And so he'll say a blessing and then break this matzah into two pieces, set aside one half, and then the other half of this middle piece of matzah gets a new name, which is afikomen. Now, this is a Greek word that means that which comes later. And so what happens to the afikomen, it is hidden in this linen pouch and buried. So no one else at the table knows where the afikomen has been hidden except for the head of the house. And later, it's all of the, the duty of the kids to go and look for the afikomen. And whoever finds it brings it back to the head of the house. And that's how you conclude the Passover Seder. So nobody saw me put it right there. You didn't see that, okay? We're gonna move on. <laughs> so the child asks four questions, right? We read one of them. The second and the third questions go like this. On all other nights, we eat vegetables and herbs of all kinds. Why on this night do we only eat bitter herbs? On all other nights, we don't dip the herbs once. Why on this night do we dip them twice. So those questions are meant to point us to this thing right here, this shiny plate. This is called a Seder plate. And there is a piece of symbolic food that is normally placed in each one of the compartments of the Seder plate. And it helps tell the story of Passover. We tell the story with a symbolic meal to allow us to use our senses to enter into the story of suffering and slavery of our ancestors, because it's not enough just to talk about it. We need to remember it symbolically by experiencing it with a meal. And so the first item on the Passover plate is called karpas. 
It is parsley or greens, and it represents a life that is immersed in slavery. So you dip it in salt water, which represents tears, okay? So you dip the life in the tears of slavery to immerse yourself into the story of slavery in Egypt. The second item is usually a horseradish root or an onion, and it is the root of a bitter herb, reminding us that the root of life for the Israelites in Egypt was bitter. And then third, we have what is called maror, which is horseradish. And this is a very bitter herb. And it is meant to remind us of the suffering and slavery of the Israelites in Egypt. And you're supposed to eat an entire teaspoon of horseradish at Passover, which I'm not going to do. (laughs) And you all know why, right? Because I will shed physical tears if I do. But that is precisely the point. At Passover, you are supposed to remember the suffering of your ancestors so viscerally that it's as if you were there experiencing it yourself. And then fourth, we have what is called charoset, which is a sweet mixture, kind of like a chutney, made of apples and walnuts and raisins and honey. And it's like the best bite of anything at Passover. There's like a thousand different recipes. And it reminds us of the mortar that our ancestors used to make bricks for Pharaoh in Egypt. But it's sweet to remind us of the promise of redemption that was yet to come. So you move from the bitterness of toil and slavery to the sweetness of the promise of redemption. So I mentioned earlier that some of the elements of Passover have changed. Some of the traditions have developed over time. So Jesus celebrating the Passover in the first century even looked different then than when it was initially commanded in the book of Exodus. There was some development and there's been development since the time of Jesus. So the last two items on every Passover Seder plate were actually not even a part of Jesus's Passover Seder. But I think you'll see why as we go over them. And it's for a very important reason. There is the second to last item, which is called Chagiga, which is symbolized by an egg. This is the name given to the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. So it's roasted, which turns it brown, just like the temple sacrifices were roasted. But then what happens is we actually break it We break this egg and slice it because it's a reminder of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This happened in 70 CE. So in the year 70, the temple was destroyed and so there were no longer sacrifices that were made. So we have this egg as a token of grief for the Jewish people over the destruction of the temple. And so they dip the egg in the salt water, again, representing tears, to remind us of the temple that is no longer there. And likewise, the last item on the Seder plate is called the Zroah, which is the shank bone of a lamb, right? Passover is inextricably tied to the notion of this lamb that was killed to bring us out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And we usually would eat lamb at Passover but the lamb that was eaten was the one that was sacrificed in the temple. But again, the temple was destroyed in 70 CE. 
And so from that time to this day, we don't eat lamb at Passover as a way of remembering that that temple was destroyed. And so we have the shank bone of a lamb on the Passover Seder plate to remind us of these sacrifices that are no longer made. Now the presence of these last two items, the egg and the shank bone, raise a very important question. And it is one that I wish more of my Jewish people were asking at Passover every year. And it is this, with no temple, how are we supposed to atone for our sin? The Torah, the law of Moses says very clearly, God says, I've given you the altar to make atonement for your sin because it is the blood that makes atonement. How is this possible without a temple? Now, if you asked your Jewish coworker or Jewish neighbor or friend or whatever that question today, you'd probably get a response like, who cares, <laughs> right? Who like talks about all of that archaic stuff anymore? Blood and altars and sacrifices and stuff like that. It's so like 2000 years ago, sure. But there's a very important reason why it's still a part of the Passover Seder. The reason we need to understand the importance of these elements is given to us in the same Haggadah that helps us celebrate Passover. It says that you're supposed to take everything so personally that it's as if you were being brought out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And this tradition points to a more transcendent spiritual truth. It's not just that every generation of Jewish people needs to appreciate freedom from slavery, but that each person does need to be redeemed from a different type of bondage and slavery, and that is to sin. But if there's no atonement that can be made, how is this possible? Well, let's go back to Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. How do we know that these elements of the Passover were actually a part of Jesus's Passover Seder? Read with me in Mark chapter 14, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him after one after another, is it I? He said to them, it's one of the 12. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus says, the one who is dipping the bread in the dish with me is the one who would betray me. Now, this is not just a synonym for eating. He is actually talking about the part of the Passover Seder where you would take some matzah and dip in this very bitter mixture, the horseradish, the maror. He's talking about this bitter herb that symbolized the bitterness of slavery in Egypt was the very element of the Passover Seder that they were observing as Jesus explained the bitterness of his own betrayal by revealing the spiritual slavery 
that governed Judas's life. There's a fourth question that's asked at Passover. The fourth question is, on all other nights we eat sitting upright or reclining, why on this night do we recline? So if you noticed in verse 17 there, it says that Jesus is reclining at the table and eating. We recline at the table to remind us that we are no longer slaves, but free. Slaves in the ancient Near East had to stand waiting on their masters, but we recline at Passover to remember that we've been delivered from slavery. But the irony is that Judas was able to recline at the table with Jesus, this act demonstrating freedom from captivity, while in his heart, he was very much still enslaved to his sin. And at that moment, he is as close as possible to Jesus physically, symbolically, as they recline at this table and dip their bread into the same bowl to share in remembering God's deliverance, but his heart could not have been farther away. Blinded by his motives, he lived a completely different story than the one that he appeared to be celebrating. And as Pastor Ryan shared with us last week, Judas is by no means the villain of this story, but actually a mirror for us. And with the disciples, we should ask, is it I? Am I the one? This is incredible that they even entertain this possibility because most of us would probably say, it ain't me. (laughs) Don't look at me, right? But what actually is the barometer that we have for the condition of our own hearts? as we go through religious rituals, as we go through rhythms of life, going to church, taking communion, prayer, whatever it is, do we view our proximity to God by our participation in these rituals or by the condition of our hearts? Are we like Judas in the room celebrating our redemption with Jesus, but blinded to the enslaved condition of our hearts? Jesus in the gospel of John likens sin to slavery. He says the one who sins is a slave to sin, which means we might not even recognize that that's happening. If we are unable to look at our lives and identify something as sin that the Bible clearly calls sin, that doesn't prevent it from having a spiritual hold on us. In fact, it is precisely in not acknowledging sin that it continues to enslave. The second cup of the four cups at Passover is called the cup of plagues. And this is a cup that actually is not celebratory, but mournful. It is a cup that expresses the loss of the Egyptians over the 10 plagues that were poured out on the land of Egypt. And so what we do for the cup of plagues is we actually let 10 drops from our cup fall to our plate, one for each of the 10 plagues that was poured out on the land of Egypt. And we remember that this happened because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Remember, Pharaoh was repeatedly told by Moses, let my people go. And yet he hardened his heart and said no. And each time he did, there was another plague 
that was added. And we express sorrow over this destruction, but just like Pharaoh hardened his heart and yet God used it to redeem Israel, Judas's hardened heart plays a role in moving along the story of redemption. Both Pharaoh and Judas nevertheless had free will to choose their hard-hearted response. And yet it is these acts that cause the story of redemption to be in motion. This is typically in the Passover Seder where we would break for the meal after the second cup and everyone would get up and like shuffle around and there would be food being brought to the table and the kids are like, yay, finally. And it doesn't say this in Mark's account that we just read, but John tells us that after Jesus spoke about Judas's betrayal and they dipped the matzah together, Judas immediately left and the rest of their Passover celebration took place without him. And the part of the Passover Seder that comes immediately following the meal is the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. But we can't drink from the third cup until something that has been buried is brought back. This thing that we broke, buried, and now needs to be brought back is called the afikomen, right? That which comes later. So after the meal, all of the kids will go looking for the afikomen. And when this one kid finds it, he brings it to the head of the household. It's like every kid's favorite part of Passover. And he actually, the head of the household has to buy it back from the kid, like a crisp $5 bill or something like that. And this was my least favorite part of Passover because I never found it. Not one stinking time. My sister, every year, <laughs> still bitter about it. Anyway, so we, uh, we have the, the, the broken piece of afikomen that the head of the household is holding after he has redeemed it back from the kid. He takes it out of the linen pouch and shows it to everyone at the table. And then we break off smaller pieces of this broken bread and we take each piece along with the cup of redemption. This should look familiar. <laughs> Let's read together in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The origin of communion is in these very two elements of the Passover Seder. This is not some new ritual that Jesus invented to talk about what he did. This is the climax of the Passover celebration, deeply woven into God's redemptive plan. This broken piece of afikomen and this third cup, the cup of redemption. Remember that this afikomen was broken, buried and brought back. And the matzah even itself, we said was unleavened 
right? It's a sign of sinless nature. And if matzah is to be suitable for use at Passover, it also must be pierced. Just as the prophets said that he was pierced for our transgressions. Speaking of the Messiah, there is a reason why Jesus called this his body. Remember that it was taken from this threefold pouch, this matzah tosh, that contained three layers of unleavened bread. And there is a lot of debate in the Jewish community about what this pouch means. Some say that it represents the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why was the middle one broken, buried, and brought back? Others say that it represents the three divisions of worship in the ancient kingdom, the priests, the Levites, and the people. But why was the middle one broken, buried, and brought back? The origin of this tradition as a part of Passover has been lost. There are so many competing explanations about what this means, but I think we can see the intention. John, the book of John says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. So those of us who can see this tradition with the eyes of faith can actually see that this threefold unity bears witness to the unity of God himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And the middle one was broken, buried, and brought back because Jesus himself was broken, buried, and brought back. Jesus said, this is my body. This pierced, striped, unleavened piece of matzah was broken, just as Jesus was about to be broken as he goes to the cross. And similarly, he took this cup, this cup of redemption, the one after the meal, and he raised it and said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Again, not a new tradition, but actually fulfilling something that had been said hundreds of years before by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the covenant I made when I brought them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband. But this is the covenant I will make with them in those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And what? I will remember their sin no more. He connects this to the forgiveness of sin, this spiritual slavery that has enslaved our people from the very beginning would be dealt with once and for all by the sacrifice of the lamb. The Haggadah specifically states that this broken piece of afikomen and the cup of redemption are symbolic of the lamb that was killed to bring us out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, just as Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just as we've been looking at through the Gospel of Mark, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Anyone who acknowledges 
that they are truly in a state of spiritual slavery is invited to apply the blood of the doorpost to the doorposts of their hearts. This promise is that God will remember your sin no more. There is no other condition needed than to recognize that we need to be redeemed. And it has everything to do with what Jesus accomplished and not with what we deserve. Now do you see how important it is not to divorce Jesus' work of atonement for sin from its Jewish context? If you've ever been confused as a Christian about why we believe that Jesus shedding blood for us somehow makes up for all of our sin, this is it right here. God chose this picture, this story to show that what happened in a physical way for the nation of Israel must happen in a spiritual way for all who can humble themselves to see our true spiritual condition. And this is either the most egregious form of cultural appropriation that exists, or it is the greatest story ever told. The invitation for us today is to make the story of the lamb our story. After the third cup, we come to the fourth and final cup, which is called the cup of Hallel or praise. Hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. So it's customary before the fourth cup at Passover is taken to recite from the Hebrew Bible what is known as the great Hallel. These are the Psalms from 113 through 118. And that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples did as they concluded their Passover celebration. It says in verse 26 that they sung a hymn as they were departing. That's what they would have been singing. And it ends with this profound statement in Psalm 118. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This prophecy about the Messiah, this anointed one who would be rejected by all of the other leadership. And then things get a little awkward. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. (laughs) So they just finished celebrating this great meal remembering the deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And then they sing this song that ends with the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Jesus goes, speaking of rejection, tomorrow you guys are all going to abandon me. Actually this very night. And then after I raise from the dead, let's all meet up in Galilee. (laughs) So before he was talking about just one of them, who is going to betray him. But now he says, actually, you will all fall away. 
And Peter, good old Peter says, maybe these guys will, but not me, not me. I will never ever fall away from you. I will never reject you. I will never leave you. And what Jesus says in that moment is that Peter had an easier time of doubting Jesus's words than doubting his own motives. <laughs> we can see so easily an image of ourselves in Peter's response to Jesus. Just after celebrating this great act of redemption where Jesus describes that the entire Passover celebration has been pointing to him and what he was about to do, he says, you're gonna fall away from me. And they do. All of his friends abandon him, even Peter, and especially Peter. And Peter doubles down on Jesus's words because Jesus's words actually highlighted a spot in his heart that he did not want Jesus to shine the light on, which is his pride. And the invitation for us today is to ask, what is it for us? Will we allow Jesus's words to disrupt us in this way? As we consider this meal, this story that has been told since the foundation of the world, that it was part of God's redemptive plan and consider for ourselves, what story have we been living into? As things have gotten difficult over this past year, as challenges have come, maybe initially, maybe before this year, we said, there's no way I'd ever give up on Jesus. And then we see some of our friends and they are. We said, wow, I never thought that would happen. And then we start considering for ourselves how difficult everything has been. But friends, the invitation for us today is to not try to cram the story of God into our own cracked, frail stories, but actually to realize that God's love for you was forever proclaimed when Jesus, the Lamb of God, was broken, buried, and brought back for you. To apply ourselves to this story, when things get difficult, when we can't understand what is going on, realize that there is actually another narrative going on altogether. The invitation is for us to consider our spiritual slavery, our need to understand the blood of the Messiah being applied to the doorposts of our hearts is for us today. And many of us have grown impatient during this pandemic, wanting God to speak something new to us, reveal something to us that might give us strength to keep going. And many of us have decided when he doesn't, that it's time to give up on him altogether, just like his disciples did. But what God is inviting us to see is that what he has already done for us in the past, what he has done in Jesus 
is for us to remember today and apply ourselves to every day going forward. That God's definitive statement for all time about how much he values us, the length he went to display his love for us does not change with our feelings or with the seasons. So friends, remember what story you are a part of today. And if you haven't considered whether you belong to this story, the invitation is yours today to see the story of the lamb as your story. Let's pray together.